in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Two brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, John Flack and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We're here to watch some movies and talk about them. I got some bad news. John won't be joining us today because he is still working on his time machine. Uh, he has the flux capacitor working, but he's on the search for some plutonium to power this time machine. So he won't be here this week. Odds are good that he may be back soon, though. And uh, we'll, we'll have a time machine to go back watch movies in real time as the year they came out. In the meantime, though, I've got some very exciting news. I've got a great co-host with me today. Standing in is my wonderful wife, Mary Guest. Hi, everybody. It's good to be here today. Hello, Mary. And... Who do we have on the other end of this line? Uh, Mary, somebody you know very well, right? My lovely college roommate, Kelly Todd, is joining us today. So we're really excited to have her. Thank you for coming on the show, Kelly. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Tell the people at home what you are, where you're from and what you do. Um, I, I currently reside in East Tennessee, and I am a customs entry specialist for a um, third-party logistics company. So it's really fun and interesting. That's great. Let's get a little feel for where you are in movies. What kind of movies do you enjoy the most? Um, I have to tell you, right now, I'm really enjoying Marvel's uh, cinematic universe. But I also tend to dabble a little bit in um, period pieces, and it's just sort of all over the board. Um, period pieces, action adventures, my really big main hold, though. Well, that's why we called you here today for this um, for this episode. Um, what is the worst movie recommendation you have ever received from somebody? Uh, it would have to be Scott Pilgrim versus the world. It just wasn't, it wasn't my thing. It just, it didn't sit right with me, I don't think. Got a strong endorsement, but it didn't pan out for you. That's okay. What movie have you seen the most in your life, would you say? The most? It's going to be a tie between Star Wars, A New Hope, and actually Iron Man. Hmm. Both good ones. What is oh, the, yeah. yeah, yeah. If you could turn any TV show into a movie, uh, past or present, what would it be? I think I would like The Office to be made into a movie, just to sort of have a reunion to pick up after the last season, just to get where everyone's at and see how stories have progressed. I would, I would love to watch that one. Oh, yeah, that sounds <laughs> like a fantastic movie to make and to bring some of those fun characters to the screen. I really like that idea. Definitely. So what's the latest movie you have seen? Uh, the latest movie I saw in theaters was Robin Hood. And I actually, I, I kind of liked it. I knew what I was doing going in, but I, I really kind of, I kind of enjoyed it. I, we, we saw it ourselves. 
recently. What, I, I know it got, uh, I got I know it got bad reviews, but I feel like sometimes a movie is just okay for it to be fun. I liked it. Yeah. So, I, I you're right. It's it's a thrill ride. It's 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 all action and adventure, and I mean it's not you're not going for historical accuracy, but uh, no, I had a fun time. I don't know. It's the kind of thing where you jump off a four-story building and get up and walk away. But I mean, it's pretty consistent <laughs> with this level of reality. So. Oh, true. Oh, yeah. So anyway, uh, we're transitioning from that movie to another movie that is, uh, you know, a little bit uh, larger than life itself. Uh, we're gonna today. We're gonna do 1989's uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. This movie was a smash hit. It grossed 197.1 million dollars, according to Box Office Mojo. Uh, it placed number two in the box office, coming behind only Michael Keaton's Batman. He's Batman. Um, and, uh, you know, coming ahead of Lethal Weapon 2. IMDb rates this 8.3, which I would think it would be higher, to be honest with you. And critics uh, of Rotten Tomatoes give it an 88%, and the audience score gives it a 94%. So people like this movie. Um, it won the Academy Award for Best Sound Editing and um, was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Score and Best Sound, but it lost to The Little Mermaid and Glory, respectively. So... Sean Connery got received a Golden Globe Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Did not win that. So, um, anyway, um, Kelly, tell us, have you seen this movie before? And if so, what were your expectations coming in this time? Uh, I did see it before. I've seen it many times, as a matter of fact. Um, coming in this time... I haven't watched it in a while, like at least a year or two. So I wanted to make sure it still held up and that my memory was correct on everything. And uh, I, th- I think it did hold up still. I, re- I, I really enjoyed it this time around, too. Well, that's great. Mary, had, what about you? Last Crusade. This is a movie I've seen uh, many times in the past. Um, growing up, it was Indiana Jones was one of my favorites. It's kind of hard to have expectations with a movie that's so dear, you know, dear to my heart. And sometimes it's it's often hard to, with a movie I love so much, to kind of review it critically um, and be not biased. But this is a movie that's very close to me. So I was excited to get to talk about it today. Yeah, this is like a comfortable pair of shoes. I mean, I've, I've broken it in well before and uh i've seen it many times as well uh it has been a little while i I saw i saw it on tv probably about three or four years ago a little bit but not in its entirety probably the last time i sat down to watch the whole thing through was in college so definitely happy to return to it and uh it did not disappoint it's good every time this is the part of the show where i want to warn everybody there will be spoilers Uh, we're going to talk about the entire movie so if you have never seen indiana jones and the last crusade I certainly recommend going back and watching all three Indiana Jones movies from the beginning. Um, well, you can. There's a fourth one too, but uh, we, we can ignore that. Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't exist. Yeah, go back and watch the original trilogy of Indiana Jones. Uh, this is the third movie in that trilogy, and uh, Kelly is now about to give us a plot summary. But before that, we're gonna have a message from our commander in chief. President Donald J. Trump here from the White House. You know, America gets so tired of listening to all the fake news out there. They're always treating me very unfairly. It's shameful, really. It's a shame I get so tired of all the news that I've taken to listening to podcasts. There are a lot of fake podcasts out there, too, pretty much any of them from CNN. 
but one that all of America seems to be able to agree on, including myself, is the Retro Movie Roundtable Podcast. Stop worrying about the investigations, what's going on in Russia, go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from, and give them a shiny gold five-star review. Comment below, let them know how to make the show even greater, like them on Facebook, reach out to them at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. Maybe someday they will be lucky enough to review my tremendous acting performances and Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. I was a terrific star of that movie and the Academy Awards rigged the Oscars that year to exclude me. It's too bad, really. It's very bad. But you know what isn't bad? The Retro Movie Roundtable Podcast. Thank you, America. And you're welcome. Wow. The president is a big fan of the show. That's like his third time endorsing the show. Yeah, I guess that's what uh, he's doing with his recreational time in the White House. Uh, <laughs> I guess he's not busy. So, Kelly, are you ready to yes. take us on a plot summary of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Absolutely. After we get a glimpse of young Indiana Jones obtaining his signature headwear, mastering a whip, and his love of protecting artifacts, the film opens on a boat where our older hero is currently captured and forced to give up the same artifact he rescued as a teenager. A struggle ensues, but Indy comes away with his prized artifact after the boat sinks. Cut to Indiana Jones teaching archaeology at his university, where all the ladies are enthralled. He tries to play off archaeology as fact, not truth, and to forget exotic travels and X marks the spot on maps. Oh boy, if they only knew. Marcus Brody comes at the end of class to see his latest treasure, a cross that Indy donates to Marcus's museum. Later, Indy is approached and taken to Walter Donovan's home, shown an ancient tablet, a marker for the Holy Grail. Walter says a search for the Grail is already underway, and the next clue is thought to be in Venice, Italy. But they've hit a snag. The project leader and his research have disappeared. Walter wants him to find the project leader, Henry Jones, Indy's father. Indy is joined by Marcus, and the two find the Elder Jones's home ransacked. Indy remembers a parcel he received earlier in his office. It's his father's diary, the one about searching for the Holy Grail. It's decided. The boys are going to Venice. A woman who has been working with Henry meets the pair in Italy, Dr. Elsa Schneider. The trio are able to find out that the tomb they are looking for is below the library Henry was last seen. While Elsa and Indy are exploring, Marcus gets knocked out by a group of men who follow them. Elsa and Indy uncover the tomb and the next clue. Um, a group of men light the chamber afire, but with some quick thinking, both Indy and Elsa escape and steal a boat. After a boat chase, it turns out that the people chasing them are working to keep the Holy Grail a secret, called the Brotherhood. They're told Henry is being held at the castle of Brunwald on the Austrian-German border. With missing information found, they can now put out a starting place with a map Henry had been compiling in his research. They decide to split up. Indy is going after his father, Marcus going to the starting point. Indy and Elsa head to the castle. Turns out it's a Nazi headquarters. Indy figures out which room his father is being held in and with some fancy whip work, makes it inside only to be hit in the head by his father. Henry is more concerned with the vase than the fact that he smashed it over his son's head. Henry states the Nazis won his diary, so that's why he mailed it to Indy. Nazis burst through the door and demand the book from Indiana. Both deny having the book, but eventually, Henry finds out his son did bring the diary all the way back. Oops. A shouting match begins, the perfect distraction, before Indy quickly dispatches the Nazis. Finding Elsa is easy, but finding out she's really a Nazi is harder for Indy. Both father and son are taken into another room where Donovan is revealed to be working with the Nazis. Also revealed is that the, the map is missing from the book. 
Indy gave it to Marcus. Next, we see both of the Jones men tied up in the castle in Austria. With a final kiss, Elsa leaves with the Nazis. The struggle is real as Indy reveals to his dad that they need to get to Marcus before the Nazis do. A lighter is retrieved to begin to burn through the ropes. However, through a series of unfortunate events, the room becomes ablaze. While dealing with the blaze, Donovan gets word that he has Marcus in the map. The Jones men manage to get into the fireplace and accidentally find it is a secret door to a room filled with Nazis. Faced with a roaring fire of Nazis, they manage to free their bonds and escape. They stumble into a way out and commandeer a motorcycle. At a divide in the road, the father and son have an argument. Go to Berlin to retrieve Henry's diary or meet with Marcus to get the map. Henry states there's more to it than just finding where the grail is kept. There are three booby traps that one has to overcome and the clues are in the diary. They head to Berlin, right into Nazi territory. At a book-burning ceremony, Indy confronts Elsa and gets Henry's diary back, complete with Adolf Hitler's signature. The pair get tickets out of Germany on a Zeppelin, but Nazis discover them and they manage to escape in a biplane. They crash during a dogfight. The pair end up meeting with Sulla, learning of... Her Marcus's abduction. The Nazis are already on their way with the tank. The Joneses and Sulla manage to catch up to them, only because the Brotherhood has intervened and rescued Marcus. The foursome catch up with the remaining Nazis, including Donovan and Elsa. They found the temple, but are unable to get through the booby traps. In an effort to press Indy into risking his life with the trials, Donovan shoots Henry. Using his father's diary, Indy overcomes the traps, the breath of God, the word of God, and the path of God. He reaches the chamber where it is guarded by a knight, kept alive for 700 years by the power of the grail. In the chamber are numerous grails. However, only one is the true grail and will bring life. The rest are false and will bring death. Elsa selects an elaborate chalice for Donovan, who ages and turns to dust after drinking from it. Indy selects a simple pewter cup, the true holy grail. The knight tells him he cannot take it past the temple's entrance. Indy fills the chalice with holy water and gives it to Henry, who upon drinking it is healed instantly. Elsa then grabs the grail, intending to get, out, get it out of the temple. She fails, however, when the temple begins to collapse and she perishes reaching for the chalice after it falls into a crevice. Indy tries to get the grail as well, but his father persuades him to give it up. Father and son escape with Marcus and Sulla, and we are left with the fact that they named the dog Indiana. Well done, Kelly. Thank you very much for that. Uh, so what do we think about the story here? Uh, Mary, do you want to take this one first? The story uh, unfolds uh, in a really clever way. Um, I felt it was a wonderful way to insert Sean Connery's character into the series by showing that um, opening at the beginning in 1912 where you you meet young Indy and you you meet Henry Jones but you don't actually see him until you get to present day 1938 yeah it's the third movie you're getting to know the character better Kelly uh, what are your thoughts on the overall like does it work for you like the, the premise of seeking out the holy grail I think so I mean I think in um from you knew what to, you know what to expect when you get to an Indiana Jones movie. You know there's going to be adventure. There's going to be a little bit of romance. Uh, there's going to be a little hint of danger sometimes. And I, I feel that it 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 sort of brings like um, Indiana can get hurt, uh, and he but he always comes through and and gets what he's after. Um, but yeah, I, I I agree with Mary. Adding uh, Sean Connery in it it just it's like icing on the cake in this one. 
I think one of the most things that was interesting to me about this movie um, and how it's different than the other two Indiana Jones movies that came before it is the search here for Indy's character is not really so much about the artifact itself. It's more about his dad. And he even says it at one point in the movie um, that he didn't come for the cup of Christ. He came to find his father. And I think that makes this movie distinct in the series. It does. It does. I mean, it takes the same arc of the other movies. Uh, George Lucas described this as, uh, he says, when they started an Indiana Jones movie, they kind of want to start it with the end of another movie. So he's coming off of an adventure. In this case, it was the big uh, stormy boat where he's catching up with somebody who he had crossed paths with before. And that's a movie I would want to see. But it's like James Bond in that we get this big first scene to throw you into things and then he goes back to school just like james bond goes back and gets his mission and uh then he starts a new adventure and uh it's pretty consistent across all three well it's consistent even in the fourth movie as well so (laughs) if you haven't noticed i'm just gonna get it out there indiana jones and the uh, kingdom of the crystal skull not a good movie no it's not a good movie I wanted to like it, but... There we go. We did it. We tore the Band-Aid off. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't good. (laughs) There are three really good movies in this series and one other movie. (laughs) You should just stop at the end of this movie. Those That trilogy together just works. And just don't go on from this point. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... It's surprising that it's Spielberg and Lucas and and Harrison Ford. Every they got the band back together, but then you find yourself wondering: is like, hmm, how thankful am I for other trilogies like Back to the Future that didn't make a fourth movie? Like I it? was concerned when uh, when uh, some of the actors they asked to come back chose not to. <laughs> that made me say, oh, okay, That's true. what's happening here? That's true. Sean Connery got out while the getting was good. Uh, I heard that John Bryce yes. Davies also chose not to come back. I, I can imagine if like Sean Connery reading it, like like going from like okay I'll do this, and, like like watching his eyes, like like what, and, like going to like confused, then to sad, <laughs> then to angry. What what, what, is, what is this? This is crap. This is intolerable. <laughs> You're not going to make this movie, are you? That's absurd. <laughs> No. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> speaking of Sean Connery, let, let's let's go through the cast here a little uh, a little bit here. Um, not a long cast, but a great cast. We've got Harrison Ford's retrieving his role as Indiana Jones. Uh, as we mentioned, we've got Sean Connery coming in as Professor Henry Jones and the father of Indiana Jones. Denholm Elliott returns as Marcus Brody. Um, Allison Duty is Elsa. Uh, she is a fellow archaeologist who ends up double crossing Indy along the way. John Reese davies uh, plays Sala, his uh, fun, wacky companion and on, in the field. Uh, Julian Glover plays Walter Donovan, kind of your champagne villain who is up to no good and has nefarious motives to try and gain immortality. Uh, River Phoenix plays the young Indiana Jones. Uh, Michael Byrne plays Vogel, the Nazi sergeant. Kevork Malkin plays Kazim. And Robert Edison plays the infamous Grail Knight, who is there to judge whether you pick wisely or not. What do we think about this cast, Kelly? I think it's really great. I really like how Harrison Ford 
and uh, Sean Connery play off of each other. I, I just I, I find myself just grinning at their relationship on screen sometimes because it's just so humorous. Um, I also I've, I also really enjoy um, just the the scene with um, Marcus and Sulla in the uh, marketplace when they first get to, um, I can't remember where they first get to, but when Sulla realizes that it's a, it's a trap and, and um, Marcus just doesn't understand. I liked how those two actors play off of each other a little bit there too, but I really, I really think this was a really good cast. I agree. There's great chemistry between both uh, Harrison Ford and Sean Connery. Sean Connery almost injected a new life. For the, for the series. Spielberg said, when you're going to get a father of Indiana Jones, you need to get James Bond. So we went and got the greatest James Bond. Uh, Sean, yeah. And so uh, Sean was a fan of history himself. So he was always encouraging to other add things in, adding comedic elements himself. I'm sorry, uh, Harrison Ford and he uh, pushed each other to be better. Harrison Ford says this is the most fun he's had making one of these. I thought it was also uh, fun to point out that uh, our lead actress here, Alison Duty, is not actually Austrian or German. She's Irish. <laughs> She's Irish. She fooled me and everybody else. <laughs> she. We found an interview with her where she was saying that she got offered a lot of uh, German roles <laughs> after <that>. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so she, she fooled everybody a little too well, I think. I liked Alison Duty a lot. She plays a complex character that goes from being somebody who's pulling the wool over Indy's eyes and double-crossing him. Turns out she's working with the Nazis. But then she also shows remorse and that she cares for Indy and that she has regret in what she did. Uh, it's an interesting character that's different than any of the women that we've seen in the Indiana Jones movies before this. She's not got a lot of experience, and I'm impressed with uh, one of her first outings. I'm sad that we don't see her in more movies. Um, but yeah, Sean Connery was definitely the first choice, always was. And uh, if they had failed, though, they had other thoughts in mind of getting Gregory Peck or John Pertwee. But John Connery, I can't imagine anybody else playing it. So, Kelly, what do you think about River Phoenix playing the young Indiana Jones? Uh, I thought he did a really good job just sort of embodying what, you know, Harrison Ford set out in the first two movies. I think it's a shame because I know he played a little bit in the young adventures or the adventures of the young Indiana Jones. I, I think he did a really good job and I would have liked to have seen more from him. Well, there was more, and as you mentioned in the Young Indiana Jones TV series, uh, Chronicles, uh, but uh, Phoenix was asked to play it, but he actually turned it down, and Sean Patrick Flannery was the TV Young Indiana Jones. I really didn't watch a lot of this. Did you, Mary? You know, I, th I think that I did watch them, and I'm not sure how much I really remember of them. I think I remember enjoying it. I'd have to go back and see what year... I would have been in elementary school, I believe, mm -hmm. what year that actually was. But on, you know, trying to rewatch this movie from a critical eye, I was trying to you know, challenge myself, well, why is it that I like River Phoenix being Harrison Ford so much? And I started to notice he gets, he really kind of picks up on Harrison Ford's mannerisms. And there was one moment when he uh, is, he's just stolen that cross and he's, turning away from the looters to go up the rope because he thinks he's succeeded. He's got this little smirk on his face and then he trips and falls and they spot him. The 
just nailed it in terms of what Harrison Ford's mannerisms would have been in that situation when playing Indy. So I just think that it's those subtleties mm-hmm. that um, made this character so enjoyable. Absolutely. And they'd worked together before on a movie called Mosquito Coast. So it was actually Ford who suggested they get Phoenix to play the younger version of him. So Phoenix had uh, been around Harrison before in other movies and could do an imitation of him. And other people found it amusing. So it was a natural fit. Kelly, what do you think about what we talked about Allison Duty a little bit? Uh, Do you like her as the Indiana Jones uh, leading female? I think so. I liked her. And then... um... I know I remember the first time I watched it when I figured when we we have the reveal where she's actually working in cahoots with the Nazis. Um, it was sort of like, you, you can't do that. You can't, you know, proposition Indiana Jones and then turn against him. Um, but uh, but I, I really liked her and I liked her acting. Yeah, I, I think I just I liked her, even though I know she was a Nazi. I, I think she um, was a good foil for Indiana Jones, just sort of being. Um, I'm so sorry, my brain stopped. No, it's okay. Would, would, you, would you say would you say that it was interesting to have uh, Indiana Jones matched with another archaeologist at his side? Because when we we're coming off of the Temple of Doom, and Willie is kind of uh, a handful, to put it lightly. And, uh, oh, yeah. you know, it's it's kind of fun for a while to have somebody who matches him in terms of intelligence and background and somebody who pushes him and gets him excited about his field. So I, I liked the dynamic. And I remember the first time that I saw it, I was I was really sad. I was like, what is going on here? Why did you go to all that trouble if you're a bad guy? It didn't it didn't compute to four year old me. <laughs> no. <laughs> It also, I kind of like the fact that she was so distinctly different than the other two women who we saw uh, star opposite of Indy. Uh, All three are pretty different, really. Yeah, distinctly different characters. So it was nice to, you know, yes, she was kind of, you know, ended up being a villain, but it was also nice to see a distinctly different type of role here. And uh, those are real rats that they use, which we'll get into a little bit later. But one of the reasons she got the role is because she was willing to work in the rats. So... (laughs) A lot of people, a lot of people didn't really want to mess with that. So, um, let's talk about the film creation here a little bit. Uh, Kelly, what do you think uh, about you know Steven? This is a Steven Spielberg, George Lucas creation. Lucas helps write the movie. Spielberg is the uh, executor and the director. And what do you think about their collaboration here? I think it's really great. I really like um, how they work together, and I really like other movies that they've worked on. Um, so I'm always excited when I get to watch an Indiana Jones movie or, um, just anything by Spielberg and or Lucas. But I think it's always really special when you have that combination where, where they work together and they collaborate to make a a movie. Oh yeah. It it seems like a dream team, really. (laughs) Yeah. For me, it's actually kind of, um, a, trifecta here because i think that you know spielberg and lucas you know those that that's sort of sort of the base of the triangle but then you also have john williams who who adds a level of craft on the music side of things and just sort of is this this team that is has really effective skill together absolutely 
It was interesting. Uh, Lucas said when he was conceiving this movie, uh, it was supposed to be a haunted castle movie. Uh, like, but uh, <laughs> Steven Spielberg didn't want to do that because he had just come off of Poltergeist and didn't want this haunted mansion kind of movie. Lucas went back to a previous idea he had had before for uh, the Holy Grail, and uh, Spielberg was skeptical on that before and kind of shot it down before, and he's like, oh, you're back to this again. But uh, Lucas worked it, and... Um, we still got our haunted mansion in there too, in the uh, scene where Indiana Jones is posing as there to work with tapestries, and he stumbles across a Nazi base. But we get we get we get our castle, and it all comes together. And Lucas Lucas actually does a great job of uh, making a, a unique uh, adventure. Kelly, I don't know if uh, you uh, any any thoughts you had on that one. Uh, like, uh, did what you think about uh, Lucas's uh, creation here, and how it differs from the previous two movies? Um, I think it was the first two movies. I mean, they're all adventures, which I like. But um, I think this time it went slightly darker, just a little bit, which is with the colors and things like that. The cinematography was a little darker, I thought. Um, definitely more grays, because I think we saw more Nazis this time than the previous ones. But I also really liked that castle scene, too. I thought it was different because we'd never we'd been, you know, typically mostly either a jungle before or a desert scene. So it was interesting to actually be in um, Austria or what they had for Austria. Um, but I, I really liked it. One thing that I thought would be interesting, Mary, did you notice how like the Ark of the Covenant and the uh, Grail are a little bit similar in that, or sorry, actually the diary, which tells you how to get to the Grail are similar and that the good guys have it, the bad guys have it, the good guys have it, you know, like, and then it's confused. We've lost it. And, you know, it's, it's this, it's this item that keeps the plot moving at all times. Oh, that's a really great point. The, you're right, the diary, the Grail diary actually kind of moves the plot along because you kind of go along with the diary. Wherever the diary is is where they go. Mm -hmm. So I hadn't really considered that, but that's kind of part of the storytelling process here. Yeah, I mean, Lucas is developing a formula and they could they could have kept doing this again and again and again. And if they had made a quick turnaround, maybe they could have kicked out an inspired fourth movie instead of waiting for 20 years and coming back to it, so... Uh, but he he had a he he these guys know it know each other at this point they're very comfortable with each other and it shows that this this movie to me is the best of the three uh, is this your favorite movie of the three kelly yeah i think so i definitely it's the one that i remember the most about and can can distinctly tell you what parts from the movie whereas other the other ones i sort of get mixed up just a little bit um, but yeah, this is definitely my favorite. I think out of all three of the Indiana Jones ones, I've watched this more than the other two. Oh yeah, I mean, that's that's true for me. So, May, where does this rank in your Indiana Jones rankings? Yeah, I think I have to agree with that. The characters are part of what does that for me because I love Sean Connery's character and um, Sala and Marcus are both such compelling companions. There's a lot here that makes this movie so rich for me, which is why I keep rewatching it, I guess. Mm -hmm. 
So another interesting thing that I realized, uh, George Lucas said that, uh, you know, he didn't consider these to be action movies. He said they're mysteries with a supernatural object. So he's, he considered these to be uh, like the X-Files in many ways. He feels like that's something that actually evolved out of this idea, which was interesting. And he also said that he came up with the idea for Indiana Jones a long time ago, back when he was working on the movie American Graffiti. And he was just avoiding working on other things and he started to doodle around and came up with some other ideas and that's where indiana jones was conceived a long time before doing it and uh he talked to his friend steven spielberg and they they definitely kicked up a great collaboration and moved forward with it so kelly where does this one rank for your spielberg movies uh just is this one up there i mean he's done a lot of good ones I know. I think I think it's definitely within the top three for me because I I also like um, I also like Jurassic Park, and um, and that one's a big one for me too. But yeah, definitely Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is in the top three for Spielberg movies. I mean, he's got an amazing list, and he's coming into this one on fire as well. I mean, after Close Encounters in 77, he's got Raiders of the Lost Ark in 81, E.T., Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Color of Purple, which is a serious movie. It's kind of interesting to see how he branches out, Empire of the Stun- Sun. Uh, and then after this, he goes on to do Hook, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, Amistad, Saving Private Ryan, Minority Report. I mean, he just pretty much is on an non-stop hit list until the mid-2000s at which point uh reviews of later his later work start to become a little more um you know mixed reviews but he he's the most successful director in american or i mean american film i would say i mean hitchcock's probably the most influential early on but i'd say that spielberg's the most successful he certainly has a lot of iconic movies uh to in his library so he's i think many people's favorite so this movie has a lot of humor built into it as you mentioned earlier kelly what are some of your favorite funny moments oh um in this movie i definitely like the the fireplace scene where they go where the room's definitely ablaze and they're all tied up and and he's trying to get them out and and he, he hits, he hits, I think it's one of those fireplace tools or something within the fireplace and it spins and just ever so slowly spins and they end up in that room full of Nazis and nobody notices them and they spin back around and, you know, uh, Sean Connery mentions that this is, this, this could be worse and that they had a and then they spin around again and that one woman just looks up and sees them and then takes a beat and Mm -hmm. then alarm there's just such good comedic timing in this movie um that i I think goes along so well i know the other two had some really great moments but I, i think this one definitely takes the cake out of all three with me yeah the humor again connery adds so much another one of my favorite connery moments is uh when he shoots the own plane uh, tail and like, you know, Andy's flying the plane. And so he, uh, he realizes he's taken a chain gun and blasted off his own plane tail and looks back and he's like, uh, they've hit us. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the same moment as when he, when he accidentally sets the room on fire, Absolutely. you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just... the floor's on fire. 
And the chair. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, Sala brings some of these great light-hearted moments where uh, Indy, <laughs> Indy says, Sala, <laughs> I said, no camels. That's five camels. Can't you count? <laughs> Compensation for my brother's car. <laughs> And you're right. It's not just it, 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 it's not just uh, it's not just Sean Connery doing this because and, uh, I love the scene where the librarian is stamping the books in the library, and Harrison Ford, sorry, uh, Indiana Jones picks up the uh, uh, railing or sorry the uh, big piece of metal that holds the uh, you know people guiders and like uh, smashes the floor and makes a huge sound in this otherwise quiet library. And like the librarian looks down at like the stamp that he made and like, <laughs> did I do that? Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's sometimes if you're having a movie where you have emotional moments, you have tense moments, you have action moments, and then you're trying to insert humor. It doesn't always come off. Well, I think that one thing that's beautiful here is John Williams' score is able to help you transition from one emotion to the other so it never feels out of place. Everything always flows smoothly, even though when you kind of look at the spectrum of emotion, we're all over the place in this movie. Yeah. I mean, I would say one characteristic of this movie is that it is moving. You're always, you're never too long between a joke. You're never too long between a thrill. Like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't weigh down very much. Um, would you agree with that one, Kelly? Oh, definitely. It's 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 it moves along where your attention's always grasped by something. It it never lets your attention down or lets you sort of take a deep breath before it goes right into something else. Um, I think uh, probably it would be good to talk a little bit about some of the moments where Spielberg is really shining in this movie. Russell and I kind of had to do a little bit of YouTubing to kind of investigate what is it that makes us so pulled in uh, to these shots and, and, and pulled into the movie. Um, and we discovered that he uses a concept similar to Hitchcock's point of view shot where you have a view of an actor. But then you have the view of what the actor's seeing and the view of the actor's reaction. Spielberg actually uses something similar, but he changes it up. And he uses um, what some people are, are coining this term, um, point of thought, where you see a view of the actor, then next you see what the actor's seeing, and then you go back to the seeing that actor's thought. And they really often... Sometimes you want to see what Indy's seeing, but you don't get to. You're focused in on Harrison Ford's face and his reaction and what he's doing. You don't actually get to experience. Um, and, and it creates a relationship between you and Indy in those moments. And I thought that was really great to research. And as I started to break it down, and I saw that throughout the movie, and it's like, that's why I'm so attached to this movie, because I feel like I'm in the scene. It's a Spielberg thing in general. Like, you can see that one of the reasons he is able to suck us in so much is not just because he puts you where the person is, and oftentimes he's not using the point of view in it. He's, he's showing you something else, and that's because he's giving you the feeling 
of what the protagonist is for is there for. So if Indiana Jones looks overwhelmed, like he shows you his face real close, but then he starts to move the camera around, you don't see what you're looking for. If you're if he's hunting for the X in the library, uh, he goes around looking for it, looking for it up the stairs, up the stairs. It follows you around. It doesn't show you that there's an X in the floor, even though it would be so easy for him to do that and zoom out. He dramatically reveals it at the very end, and so he's looking for something, and you, the viewer, are also looking for something too. And uh, when he finds the X, it John Williams also, you know, helps supplement that with a big score. So I don't know. Do, have Have you noticed how like Spielberg has a way of sucking you in, Kelly? Oh, definitely. I just think that I just think like uh, what Mary said sort of brings in and and makes you a part of the story or gives gives it a little bit of a personal touch where you feel connected in with um the hero or um or the heroine and just trying to just being more in the moment with them absolutely well i think another big one is where he's like comes up to the leap of faith and his foot's hanging off what appears to be the edge and you know you've got to walk out onto this thing it's through camera angles. He could show you that there's a bridge right there right away, but it's he really makes you feel like, this is crazy. I don't want to take a step right now. You get into their shoes really well with it. Uh, you, we were talking a little bit about how uh, movement was working. Do you want to tell them about the L system? Sure. Um, you know, when I the, this flows so easily in the movie that you don't notice it until you're actually, you know, thinking about it. But Spielberg uses the concept of an an L shape in his work a lot with the camera and some of this would be the cinema cinema photographers contribution as well that there's a panning back and forth then following that is there's a pan left or right creating an L in the scene and that can also be seen both with the camera angles and with the actors where the actor changes direction in 90 degrees within the scene and sometimes even both are happening at the same time. And that creates, I think, some of the movement that we perceive. It keeps things moving constantly. The actors taking those 90 degree turns shows you them moving from the side. Then the camera will slide to the right. And then, the, then the, the actor will turn towards you. And then the camera will rotate and zoom out. It gives you that sense of motion. And I didn't realize it before we learned about this. Spielberg is constantly doing it across all of his movies and he's just something he gets better at and better at with time right even in scenes that seem mundane um we were uh looking at an example of when um marcus and indy get off of the boat in venice and they're just trying to find dr schneider they do a 90 degree turn i think four times in just just a few moments where and you're pulled into the scene because you you feel, okay, they're going this way, they're going that way. They're trying to find this Dr. Schneider. And you feel like you're in the crowd with them when there's that much movement, I think, with the camera work. So I think it's just a fun kind of thing. And once kind of we started looking for that, it, it was everywhere. <laughs> yeah, once you see the L and once you really start to learn the tricks of it like you, you can't really unsee you, it. man <laughs> you can't unsee it spielberg likes it a lot and it, he's good at it though i mean it's not it's not a burden once you can see it so uh, like i said this is a big part of why he's so influential i mean he found a way of doing something that most people either zoomed in zoomed out 
panned to the side, but he he would create this series of L's by zooming, then panning, then rotating, then panning, then having the actor turn. Everything's very L's. Like, so it's just... Yeah, another good example, um, which is a really simple set in the classroom at the beginning, there are a number of 90-degree turns with the camera work with Indy and with Marcus, all in the matter of a few moments, all within one room. Yeah, you come down the hall, it, you turn, look in the door... Then move through the door. The actor comes in, turns left, and then the camera comes into the classroom, pans across the the uh, crowd, and like what she was talking about there, it's it's pretty neat when you start to get inside the head of the somebody like that. So there's a lot of neat, a lot of neat information out there. I just want one. I want to go back just a little bit too about the collaboration. Uh, so Lucas and Spielberg met through a mutual cameraman friend. They had been friends for a long, long time. And so when they did Raiders, they were they didn't think about it. They just rushed into it together. They said they they weren't worried about ruining their friendship, and Lucas said uh, that they were very much alike. They they did there was not a lot of arguing. They had a similar creative agenda. Uh, they like to make people feel emotions. They like to make people feel that they've had an experience, and they complemented each other really well. He said that it was a great adventure for them, and it's something they were able to work together for multiple movies he said like that's just was a great collaboration and that's the way it should be so and if somebody would uh say no to each other not many people at this point tell george lucas no not many people say no to steven spielberg but they could kind of check each other that way and say like i don't think this works that way and then they also had the respect they constantly would say each other's like well it's your story i'll i'll do what you want or he would say well you're the director it's your film you do what you want a lot of deep respect there it works until the crystal skull. We <laughs> <laughs> oh. could just forget about that. I think they just got rusty. <laughs> You're harping on the heart. It's like I'm gonna operate under the guise that this is the last of the of the Indiana Jones movies, and we'll go we'll go from there. <laughs> um, yeah. I think, I think George Lucas just came. Stephen, you're awesome. I'm awesome. Let's just put the Indiana Jones movie on it. People will pay money. Great oh. idea! Boy, did we. We paid money and it got to one point point. we were like, really? Really? This is what it, This is what we're getting with this one? Oh. oh, man. So so many, so many, so many good moments here, but we got to get into the atmosphere a little bit. So, Kelly, what do you think about... We, we go globetrotting all over the place in this one. What is... How do you feel about the environments and the time periods? So, we're in 1912 when he's young and 1938 when he's a full-grown adult what do you think about the locations that this and the journey that this takes you on um i really like i really like the journey and just different places that they go i mean i even like the the cheesy little uh travel montages that they do um, to get from locations i love the map i love you know the map overlay with you're going from point a to point b and they show you where and the flyover and just traveling like that um i like i like the different locations um i like how sort of you've got the 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 desert scenes with um sulla and marcus but then you also it it's sort of transposed with the darker castle scenes before we eventually get into full desert towards the end there. But I really like how they've got, they use each different location um, sort of has a, a different 
a different feel and a different vibe uh, than the next. I, th- I thought one of the funny ones early on was I, I noticed, uh, did you notice we're in Moab, Utah, like where like you got all this desert around with these neat arches and the rock formations and then he hops on a train and then all of a sudden it seems like you're in lush green hillsides. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just kind of funny. They had to, they shot this scenic uh, railroad line, uh, the Cumbrus uh, Tolick Scenic Railroad in South Colorado. So they started in Utah and then they shot it in Colorado. And it looks strangely like the uh, motorcycle chase in Berlin. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just, also uh, true. Colorado was well there. It looks so. like Colorado as well. <laughs> I could be wrong on that, but after seeing I'll this movie, overlook it. After seeing these movies enough times, I, I was just like, are they in like a nice wooded hillside somewhere? Well, wherever it is, if you turn left down this dirt road, you'll go to Berlin. If you turn right down this dirt road, you'll you'll be in Venice, Italy. Yeah, where in Europe is that intersection? Like, where are those the only two signs that say Venice and Berlin? It was very convenient. <laughs> Even in Switzerland, I doubt highly that intersection exists. <laughs> but you have to suspend your disbelief. This is it's Indiana Jones. That's true. <laughs> um, fun tidbit of uh, knowledge here. Uh, and it doesn't really say it in this movie, but uh, so Indiana Jones is a teacher at Marshall College in Bedford, Connecticut. But this isn't Connecticut. It's Rick uh, sorry, Rickmansworth, England. Um, so there, a lot of this movie is shot in England. Uh, all the, all the studio stuff is shot in England. Uh, so, uh, most of the interiors, a lot of the, uh, you know, temple scenes on the interior are, but, uh, they did go to Venice and, uh, it was kind of interesting. The filmmakers were saying it was so crowded and it was so hot and it's hard to control people and clear an area. Uh, so it was a nightmare for them filming to try and get people to not look like they're in the 1980, 1980s into their 1938 uh, time period. So that's quite a challenge, apparently. So uh, Venice must deal with this all the time. There's tons of movies shoot in Venice. I thought they go to Spain for those uh, beach scenes, uh, like that great scene where Sean Connery's shooing up all the doves, or sorry, the, the, the seagulls up into the plane to crash a plane. Yeah, the uh, fun fact, those were actually doves. I, I, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> it's going to be a look for this moment <laughs> when I, we got I, to the end of the podcast. But yeah, the, Sean Connery's actually shooing doves. Yeah. Pretty effective. Se- seagulls though. don't do what they're told at all. So they had to use doves and they just shot quickly. <laughs> so um, what uh, would you think about the, uh, you know, the te- the temple towards the end, uh, the the petra temple where that's cut until the rock hillside which is a real place kelly oh yeah isn't that i want to say isn't that in syria jordan or jordan okay there you go sorry geography's a little off um no i thought it was wonderful and impressive i think it's i think it was nice of them to use that spot but it, it just it stands out from the rock face just beautifully i thought that that was a good call to use that yeah they didn't shoot any interiors in there but that 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 is they approached it from the outside that is a real place and it's kind of interesting it never was that popular of a tourist destination but after this film it goes on to become quite a hot spot for people to travel to so uh and you can see why it it makes it look very intriguing uh when you get there it's not obviously it's cut into the side of a mountain 
it's kind of a small room. So it's it's more about the facade and the exterior. It's got this giant grand thing and it leads to a simple smaller interior. So still go there if you get a chance. It's also not in a crescent valley. Yeah, I think it was just really clever to create there's there's something magnificent and monumental, but also humble about the fact that that site was carved into ground. It wasn't a monumentous temple on a hill, hilltop that the grill was kept in. They kind of went more a little bit on the humble side and having it you know carved into stone and it being a deep dark place. I, I think and and deep in this wonderful cavern. So I think there was something poetic about it, just in the way that there's a sort of an unexpected element to the place when you actually get there just like when he chooses the cup and it's actually the most simple basic cup that's in that room it is actually the one that's the the real artifact i think there's sort of they i think they were echoing that sentiment there yeah i i thought uh i thought elsa came out of that deal pretty good she's like he's like choose which cup for me and she's like this one no consequences of picking wrong <laughs> She'd be like, hmm, who else wants to try one that I'd pick out? <laughs> Process of elimination. <laughs> and the knight's expression on, like the knight's dry expression of, he chose poorly. Mm-hmm. So good. <laughs> what do we think about uh, the uh, wardrobe of the people in this? So we're in, like, we're in the uh, 19, uh, late 1930s, kind of feels like World War II era. I, I somehow as a kid always envisioned uh, Indiana Jones' hat as being more of a cowboy thing, but it's kind of more of a gangster thing. I never, like, it's kind of a, you know, a gangster hat to some degree. Um, I, I, I thought it was interesting when uh, at the beginning he gets his hat from another uh, artifact, I guess thief or tomb raider. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, I thought it was interesting. The other five guys who worked with that Tomb Raider had different hats themselves. And I thought he got the best hat of the bunch for sure. Somebody had like one of these floppy, like conductor kind of hats. Somebody had one of these strange, like tall hats that had like a, like giant hump on top of it, like something a scarecrow would wear. And, uh, I was like, I was like, man, you came out of, you lost the artifact, young Indiana Jones, but you got the best hat. Oh, Absolutely. And it, it's sort of like they all wore different hats in the job, sort of. So it's like passing the baton a little bit. Like, hey, kid, you're going to be an archaeologist. You're going to need this one day. Yeah, that he, kind of thing. He gave him a hard time, but he, I, guess, I guess he kind of reminded him of uh, the, the, that Tomb Raider of himself earlier. So he's like, he kind of smiled at one point. He's just like, can you believe this kid? I'm still going to get what I want, but good on him. Yeah. What do we think about the Nazis in this movie, Kelly? Um, I think I read somewhere that the um, the the Nazi uniforms are actually based off of World War II uniforms, or they had original World War II uniforms that they made into Nazi uniforms, which I thought was interesting. I thought, I mean, I, I didn't have to look twice to sort of, you know, get the feel of it, especially in that, was it the book burning scene where they're all there? I, I thought they stayed pretty true to what I've seen in, um, you know, in textbooks growing up and things like that. So that scene is actually shot in England as well. So 
Can you imagine somebody coming out of like a cryogenic freezing, like walking out in England, out into a uh, lobby of like tons of Nazi soldiers there burning books in the middle of England and be like, oh, God, put me back in. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> this has gone horribly. <laughs> Yeah, they would have had to put out lots of press releases for that on that day, I think. Spielberg asked people to cross their fingers behind their back when they Nazi saluted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do we think about, uh, you know, the classic Indiana Jones garb, Mary? Well, it, it just is iconic of that character. And we watched a little YouTube where some of the cast was being interviewed, you know, maybe not that long ago um, from this movie and Harrison Ford walks in with the jacket on and it just feels right. You know, it just feels right on him. They, they got that right and they stuck with it. So I'm, I'm glad that they uh, were consistent with his look through the, those three movies. I, I would say that the, probably the one fun, well, they did a couple of fun wardrobe things with Indy actually the, the, when they are, kind of breaking into the castle where he puts on her hat and uh, they, they switch hats, they switch jackets <laughs> and he that. comes in mm-hmm. as the uh, what is this, Scottish law <laughs> and <laughs> really over the top. So that was a f- fun moment. And they also always poke if fun. you are at- Scottish, I am Mickey Mouse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they also poke fun at when he steals other people's uniforms. So that was one of the things they did on the blimp where they, they he took the outfit of the little waiter and he couldn't really get the jacket all the way on so he looks completely ridiculous in this very small man's jacket (laughs) and it's just those fun little things that make the you know details make the movie enjoyable that they didn't really have to get in there but they did and it was great yeah it seems like any given moment indiana jones has seven shades of brown on just Always brown, which is good for an archaeologist because you're you're digging around in dusty environments and stuff like that. Or have you seen where his clothes have been? No wonder they're brown. That's true. They dragged him <laughs> along a tank and uh, you know shoved him into the base of a rock. So you're right. Maybe they're brown because of where he's been. So years of age and staining <laughs> and, and worse. <laughs> uh, one of the uh, costume designers, uh, you know designed uh anthony powell was his name he constructed sean connery's character's wardrobe based on his own grandfather's and uh attire so all these tweed uh suits the vest the bow tie and the fisherman's hat uh and it, it does seem very grandfatherly so i could see uh it, it it's it's when i think of sean connery and i'm a huge bond fan i almost divided it into two people one is the white jacket of like when he comes up in the first uh, Doctor No, like in, when he says Bond, James Bond, and, <laughs> or you go then next to Henry Jones, and the, an entirely separate other person <laughs> that enters my mind at the exact same moment is the white bearded, uh, circular frame, like rimless glasses with the all this tweed on, and like a bald uh, old man Sean Connery, who's uh, Doctor Jones or Doctor Henry Jones. So, which Sean Connery pops into your mind first, Kelly? Oh, it definitely has to be James Bond because I think I saw, I think I was introduced to James Bond before Indiana Jones. So um, Bond was big in my household growing up. So, and whenever I think of Sean Connery, it's always James Bond. Yeah. 
So one of the special effects things I got to mention is those are real rats. They bred a thousand real rats and they had to breed them so they wouldn't have a bunch of nasty diseases and stuff like that. So Harrison Ford actually had pet rats as a kid, so he didn't have a problem with it. But uh, Allison, or, uh, Allison Duty had to actually crawl around there. And you'll notice they step on some and light some on fire. Those are mechanical rats, so PETA people need not be upset. But... Uh, <laughs> How uh, how fun would that have been to crawl around uh, water with all those rats crawling around you on a film shoot? Uh, probably not quite so fun for me, I gotta say. Did you read somewhere that they were um, they had an insurance policy on the rats? I did not know that. <laughs> I I, I want to say I read somewhere that there was an insurance policy on the rats, just in case if you know they're spending all this money making uh breeding a thousand rats for the movie they they needed to have it just in case something happened um i want to say i want to say there was an article about that wow i think there'd be a little bit of level of comfort that they're the they made sure that the rats were in isolation so they weren't going to be exposed to any um, diseases that rats might typically pass along so i guess from a certain point of view you could trust that okay if a rat bites me, <laughs> I'm going to be all right. <laughs> Even though that might not be that much comfort. I guess it might be some level of comfort for, you know, an actress who has rats literally crawling in her hair. <laughs> Another fun thing, Spielberg always looking to break new grounds. Uh, you know, he, he is also one to push boundaries. Another thing that makes him a great director is uh, Donovan's rapid aging death sequence is the first all digital composite uh, for this movie. Uh, they scanned several film uh, layers and made up transformations of uh, Donovan's demise, and they morphed the elements together digitally. And so this was the first time that they had scanned those and manipulated those together like that. So rather than just arranging film elements in an optical printer, so it took a it took a long time for them to be able to do that um, film film the death scene. So. Uh, we got a, one of the best parts about this movie is the music, Kelly. What do you think about John Williams' score? Oh, I always love a John Williams score. I mean, they're always iconic, and you always remember them, and they always, you know, they they just, every time he does one, it stands out, and you can pinpoint each one, which I think is so nice, but he he just adds so much emotion to scenes through music, um, you know, uh, at the at the end of the movie when you know they're riding off into the sunset and there's just this big swell into the Indiana Jones theme at the end um i think i i just think that's 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 iconic and that's what just what you remember most yeah i have to say since we watched this i mean it's been a few days ago now literally ever since then i have had the music stuck in my head <laughs> I keep I, as I pull up to park my car in front of the house I was hearing this whole epic epic orchestral moment when when Sean Connery's looking back at the grail night right before they leave <laughs> the temple which is crumbling in the earthquake and it's just like you know something that just sticks like you said it sticks with me absolutely superman star wars indiana jones i mean uh batman's 89 batman by uh uh danny elfman i mean these are some of the scores that if as soon as this comes on i can't help but get a smile on my face it just it's it, it's right up there for one of my favorite movie scores so 
Uh, I did think it was interesting. John Williams said that he asked Stephen which of these two songs that he liked the most, and so he had written one that has the dun da dun 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 da dun 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 dun. So they had that one, and then he had another one that was actually the bridge of the song. And Stephen's like, I like them both. Can we use both of them? And so Williams reworked things and put it all together in one song, so that those like slower moments um, and the, of the bridge of the song were actually conceived of as a separate song and it all came together. So good thing Steven Spielberg liked both parts. Otherwise it would have been a much simpler, less interesting, less dynamic song. So yeah, even though even the moments that aren't the iconic indie theme are still memorable. For instance, the the sort of really quick upbeat music that's going on during the train scene. Mm-hmm. It just accentuates the sort of, you know, fanciful vibe of uh, of that whole young indie being chased by these looters uh and you know equally as sort of impactful as you know little scenes where there's a sentimental moment between um harrison ford and sean connery where you have this little theme that's like a sort of a very delicate short sort of sean connery theme all of those things stick with me absolutely and it's a lighter, it's a lighter, brighter, and more emotional soundtrack than the pre- previous two Indiana Jones movies. There's a reason for that. It's because it's a kind of, it's about that family connection between Indy and his dad. Why don't we get into Look for This for a moment? Uh, Kelly, do you have any fun facts that you wanted to share with us from Look for This? I think they had the the rat insurance policy. They apparently had a thousand dollar deductible just for the rats. That was my. Oh, that's fine. That's, that's okay. That's really it's, interesting. It's, it's, it's kind that of a catch-all. That was my fun one. No, it's okay. It's kind of a catch-all. So, Mary, what about you? Did you have any look for this moments? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had I had a couple of look for this moments. Um, yeah, I've seen this movie many times, and it's interesting. I see something different that I hadn't noticed before. Uh, one thing I thought was fun in 1912, when you meet Sean Connery's character, and he's drawing in the Grail Diary, he, he says, and I rewound it a couple times to get it right, May he who illuminated this illuminate me. That's foreshadowing what he says at the end of the movie, where Indy asks him, Dad, what did you find? His answer is illumination. So his character kind of really fulfilled what he was looking for when illumination was what he was really after. Which was his connection with his son. And I think that... Yeah, it was kind of it's kind of a light bulb moment, and and in that moment where he almost or thinks he loses his son, um, all, when the tank falls off the cliff, that may be a pivotal moment for, in that transition to being someone who's looking for the illumination to finding it. Yeah, uh, one that I thought was interesting is uh, if anybody's familiar with Harrison Ford, he's got a scar on his chin. And so I thought this was really cool. They made it into the story in the scene of the train car when River Phoenix is dropped into a car with a lion. So he pulls the iconic whip off the wall and cracks it a few times and whips himself in the chin. And he gets blood on his chin. And that later becomes Harrison Ford's actual real scar that he got from a car crash long before he was in this movie. That scar was actually written into the story. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, sorry, Russ, I have to add on uh, another item from that 1912 <laughs> part of the movie. Um, in Again, in Sean Connery's house at the beginning of the movie, Indy and, and Marcus find it ransacked. 
if you look at the, uh, there's an Egyptian papyrus actually on the wall, and that is depicts the scene that we see later in the movie that's the leap from the lion's head, where you're actually seeing sort of an Egyptian goddess or somebody holding the grail, walking in thin air between two little cliffs. So I think that was just a wonderful bit of detail that they put in that scene that um, I think I, I, for many years, didn't notice. Okay. Yeah, and this is, this is one last one that I have is, this is a first PG-13 entry for the series because the PG-13 rating has come about largely because of the Temple of Doom, which kind of upsets oh. some people. Indiana Jones went PG-13 after that, so... Even though in many ways, Temple of Doom is much harder to sit through for, you know. he. You it know. was the eyeballs in the soup, wasn't it? I don't know. He kind of gets lowered <laughs> into a giant fiery pit. I mean, he, there's a heart that gets ripped out. I mean. Uh, there's a lot going on. There's a lot, she, really, you do watch that and you go, this is PG. <laughs> I guess if you want to know. Yeah. So how does this movie affect you, Kelly? Why don't you go first on this one? Um... Let's see. I I really like sort of the play between uh, like the father and son having Harrison Ford try to sort of seek his father's approval a little bit. I think that's that's something that's interesting. But just sort of to see a little bit of where Indiana Jones came from and where potentially he might have gotten his love of um archaeology just in a different sort of way um i it always make this movie always makes me feel really good it leaves me in a good place i guess i should say just from all of the comedy and just it's a it's a really good action adventure that just ends on a really good note i think how this affects me, that's kind of a tough one because it's, it's for so many reasons, uh, this movie's close to my heart. I would say probably the, the, if I get really down to it, I'm typically drawn to characters who are seeking truth and seeking to solve a mystery. My love of the X-Files on Mulder and Scully is actually probably similar to my love of Indiana Jones, where that's something that drives my character i'm always searching for the truth trying to find to well, solve uh, something if you're looking for truth go down the hall for philosophy <laughs> i should be looking for fact you should be looking for facts <laughs> that's not really how he operates though that might be how he teaches his class but that's not how his character operates <laughs> you, you call this archaeology <laughs> And, you know, I have to say that uh, this actually sparked a huge interest in Grail lore for me. So there was a a time, you know, in high school when I was really getting deep into researching Grail lore, Arthurian legend, the Knights Templar. Um, Even at one point did a lengthy research paper on the subject and all, you know, sort of inspired by this movie. So I think it it, it sparked an interest in history for me. It also reinforced an interest in architecture. Those scenes like in the library, I remember it being sort of, there's a lot of reasons I became an architect, but I think that one of the things that was interesting about that was the Roman numerals and how the permanence of those Roman numerals in that library and changing the perspective of how you looked at something in an architectural space. It was kind of a a light bulb moment for me in uh, pursuing the career I chose. 
So what? that was, you know, it's kind of, so it's a very sort of personal uh, movie for me in that way. Well, I'm going to echo a lot of those. Uh, just as a kid, I got really excited by the archaeologist and the adventures. I loved history even as a kid. I would sit there and watch documentaries about Egypt or Rome. And so uh, my passion for history plus the adventure of this movie, just I went through a small period of time where I wanted to become an archaeologist. And so in a weird way, you know, along with Legos and other things and solving puzzles and, you know, liking to draw, I later became an architect as well. And uh, in some way, shape, or form, I think this movie might have planted a few seeds uh, about wanting to become an architect and make some of those inspiring spaces. That, um, if you th if you think about it, archaeology is studying how you can learn from a culture through their buildings and artifacts and find out what you can because those people are long gone, and it's kind of interesting that we're doing something that's going to live a little bit longer than us. So that's kind of fun, uh, and that drew me to that too. So. Yeah, and one little side note, uh, my uh, family, they're all huge Indiana Jones fans as well, so much so that we actually did name the dog Indiana. <laughs> and so Indiana Jones was named after his dog, and so we named our dog after him. <laughs> it is the dog's name! <laughs> it was the dog's name. So why don't we get into superlatives? This is my favorite part of the show. Uh, Kelly, you want to start us off with that and give us your MVP of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? MVP, I definitely think, would be Sean Connery. Just, again, I'm really in for comedy, so I really like the comedic moments. And even when it's just his face, he's just acting with his face and not even a quip or anything like that. Just a look at Indy, I think. He's, he's my MVP for this movie. Mm, that's a good one. Mary. I do think I have to go with Harrison Ford. I know that's uh, the obvious choice, but, you know, he kind of makes these movies what they are and uh, and really the little things he brings to the role just really makes this the franchise that's standing the test of time. Absolutely. I, uh, those two are strong considerations for me, but I just am so captivated by the collaboration between Spielberg and Lucas. I gave the... MVP to Spielberg and Lucas for coming up with this one, but I mean, it is Harrison Ford easily could have gotten it or Connery as well. So I'm glad you guys picked those and we kind of covered them all. Kelly, best supporting actor. Best supporting actor. Um, I think I would have to go, even though she was the lead, I would still, she would probably still be the supporting actor. I would think I would go with Elsa just because like you said earlier, I did not realize that she was not Austrian or German or any of that. I didn't, I had no idea she was Irish. Or so Nazi. I would definitely have to give it to her. Yeah. Or well, <laughs> hopefully not that, but yeah. <laughs> Mary, best supporting actor. I'm going to give mine to Sean Connery. Cause I think whereas, you know, Harrison Ford kind of sets up the base of what we're, you know, we're building around it in my mind. I think Sean Connery is that that piece that elevates this movie to the next level. I'm going to go with uh, Sean Connery as well here. Um, I, I, I'll, I considered him for my MVP very closely. So absolutely. Uh, I'm echoing a lot of what Kelly said. His comedy is and his timing and he upped everybody's game. Harrison Ford said, and it shows. So uh, Kelly, who is your hidden gem in this movie? Um, I think it would have to be, I think it would have to be Sala. I really, I really like John, um, Jonathan Rhys Davies and I just, I, 
I would have liked to have seen maybe a little more of him, but, um, but yeah, I think Sala, I definitely like him. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. I also have him as Hidden Jim. I think that he, I've kind of loved him in every role I've seen him in. He just brings so much as a character actor. So he's, he's definitely a strong add to this cast. You know, this guy wasn't even brought up in the casting, but uh, I liked Richard Young, the guy who is known as Fedora, who gives young Indiana Jones his hat, the uh, Tomb Raider who's out to get the the artifact back. I I, I don't know, something about the beginning of the movie. He, he and River Phoenix uh, get a good bit of screen time, and I, I, I really enjoyed that whole dynamic of the movie. So I'm going to give it to Richard Young. If you had to recast somebody in this movie, who would you recast... And who would you put in their place? Kelly. See, that's really difficult. Um, I can say that I think at one point Tom Selleck was originally up for Indiana Jones. So that would be interesting to see him replaced by Harrison Ford. But I wouldn't change it for anything. There'd be a lot more mustaches. Oh, Lord, there would. (laughs) Mary. Uh, oh, first of all, I have to say that uh, under Hidden Jim, I kind of had, if I go back to that for a second, I wanted to give a tip of the hat to River Phoenix because I felt like I just really believe him as being young Indy, and I think that was really key for making um, the 1912 uh, scenes really work. That said, the re- my pick for recast is J.J. Hardy, who plays Herman, in the beginning i felt like he just really the fat kid yeah he maybe kind of overdone a little bit um a little bit too extreme and uh russell always challenges me to find somebody to put in the place of the recast so i thought about this for a while and thought that uh jerry o'connell might be a good choice having seen them together in stand by me they're the same age so it would be reasonable that they would be friends in this movie as well Hmm. and i like the fat kid in this movie but i I like that choice jerry o'connell has really a great sense of comedic timing Mm -hmm. so i felt like he could add something fun to the role that we didn't i didn't really see from the other guy no that's that's reasonable um i'm gonna go with michael byrne who plays vogel the nazi sergeant not that he's a bad nazi well all nazis are bad but uh (laughs) not that he does a bad job of portraying a nazi uh, I'm going to go with Stephen Burkhoff. Uh, you may know him from A Clockwork Orange, Beverly Hills Cop, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Rambo First Blood 2. I think that he would be a good Nazi sergeant. It's a hard movie to recast on, so I forced myself to pick one. Best shot. This is your favorite cinematic moment. Kelly? I, I definitely think it's that shot of the, the temple right before they go in. With Petra. just the facade, yes, with Petra, and just the facade and how it stands out, I, I think that's my cinematic moment there. Mm-hmm. Mary. That's a really good choice. I considered that really highly. I did want to you know, also point out the scene where, I guess we're, we'll call it the leap from the lion's head, where Indy is standing in front of what, at first looks like a huge gap falling to an endless pit but there's actually a bridge that's painted 
in perspective to look exactly like the rock behind it. The way that's shot, the tension that's built between Indy and Indy looking at (laughs) this situation and his reaction, how he deals with it, how he just steps out and how he then, when he crosses, turns around and throws sand over it. So then all of a sudden, for the first time, you see another L, another, what it really is. Another L shape. It zooms out and then pans to the side and you see the bridge. So, yeah, so that's my... That's mine as well. I'm going to second everything you said. So, uh, the leap of faith for me. Best scene. Kelly. For me, the best scene, or the one that I most remember... Um, would definitely be, I got, I got to go back to the castle. I got to go back to the castle, uh, that from the moment they get into the castle to the moment they, they find themselves, you know, with the room ablaze and just having all those Sean Connery sort of moments where he's trying to fan the fire, where he's trying to fan the fire out and he actually sparks the fire. I think that's, that's one of my most favorite moments from this movie. Just the absurdity of it. Not now, Dad. Save it till we get up. The, the floor's on fire. Yes. <laughs> it's just, it's so absurd that it's wonderful. And the chair. <laughs> and they, they start hopping away. And this is mine as yes. well. I just, and then, and then you get into this Marx Brothers almost right, element, right. like how like he hits the switch, they rotate around, and they're being shot at on one side, and then they're like being burned in oh, the fire you're right. on the other it's side. very Marx Brothers like, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah, I wrote down in my notes where they're, they're in the chair, and he goes, Dad, what? Dad, what? Dad, head for the fireplace. Yeah. And they're hopping. <laughs> Yeah, this, <laughs> that's a great point. And there's a Marx Brothers reference in this because uh, you know at one point he's like, "I should have mailed it to the Marx Brothers." <laughs> so anyway, maybe that's why they were on my mind. <laughs> that might be it. What, I, I jumped ahead of you. What, what would your favorite scene be? Um, the Is tank sweet... scene for tank? sure. Uh, you know, I kind of like wanted to pick every scene, but <laughs> if I had to nail it down to one. <laughs> The tank scene really has these amazing moments of um, creativity from Indy's character. For he literally attacks a tank on horseback and bring and brings it down. Uh, so it's impressive in terms of what the character is doing. But I think it's also really fun to see the different points of view talking about you know, different things Spielberg does. We, we see a lot of the scenes through the lens of the scope on the tank and these moments where, you know, Indy's hanging from, from the end of the gun that he just blew up with a rock. <laughs> I mean, there's all these little creative moments. I, I'm not sure that technically if you shoved a rock in the end of a tank gun that it would, <laughs> that that's the reaction you would get. But I enjoy it in the movie And I also enjoy how this fanciful adventure scene plays out to this moment of complete and utter uh, devastation where the tank goes off the cliff and we think that Indy has gone down with it. Um, And the moment when, you know, Indy comes back up and then he's just sort of standing there looking over the cliff with the other three... (laughs) It, we we went through a full range of emotions in this in this one scene about a tank, and I think that that mm. kind yeah. of is what ma- in the end made me pick that. That is another good choice. There's so many good scenes in this movie. 
And mm -hmm. there are so many great quotes in this movie. It's hard to pick a favorite or two. Uh, what, Kelly, what is your favorite quote from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Honestly, I love I love the quote at the end about the we named the dog Indiana. <laughs> I just I just feel like I, I know that's it's it's just something that stuck with me where it's like, you know, he's been reduced to junior this whole movie. And then you're like, well, is he, how do you get the name? And then at the end we named the dog Indiana. I, another, I just, yeah. Uh, yeah. Another great moment of how this movie, we've seen Indiana Jones twice before. What are we going to do differently this time? We're going to get to know him a lot deeper. And so it's, it's mm -hmm. just great to see a deeper picture of this guy that we like. So, uh, Mary, best quote. Um, it was hard to pick, not pick a Sean Connery line because you could almost pick any of his lines and make it the best quote of the movie. But I went with no ticket. That scene on the blimp when he throws the Nazi general out the window and then everyone's sort of panicking like wondering, and staring what, what, at him. Why did you just mm -hmm. throw a Nazi general out? <laughs> and no ticket says it all. And I think that kind of it was kind of fun uh in the movie dogma matt damon actually says it after he wreaks havoc was he on the subway or something yeah uh, <laughs> uses the indiana jones line no ticket <laughs> i i everybody starts so he then like explains in english to a bunch of german people no ticket and then next thing you know everybody's flashing up their tickets instead of going like what's this american saying to me right right there's a moment of delay where they're thinking about what what are the english what are the, what are the english words oh oh my ticket <laughs> oh one time everybody waves it i i'm gonna go back to the grail night that i mentioned earlier i just like the dry delivery of he chose poorly mm -hmm. and i just like the I also got to say, I, I do like the line of, um, you know, it's like, she's a Nazi. He's like, how did you know that? She talks in her sleep. <laughs> and then, like, Jones looks, Andy looks away and then looks back at his dad and, like, it's like, what? <laughs> there's another there's another good line of, like, he's like, I'm as human as the next man. Like, well, this is why I slept with her. And he's like, and, and Andy's like, I was the next man. <laughs> Like I said, you could almost take any of Sean Connery's lines and turn it into a quote of the movie. It's true. <laughs> Kelly, if you had to change one thing in this movie, if you're Spielberg and Lucas, what one thing would you change? Oh, see, that's really difficult. I think I would go with, um, I think I would go with how the Brotherhood follows them into the tomb and then lights the, the tomb on fire. I just, for whatever reason, that's the part that sticks out that I think I would change. I think Mary's going to have something to add to that. <laughs> that's, that's my change one thing as well. There's actually, I noticed a moment in there where Indy is, well, he just fell into petroleum and then he lights a torch on fire. While he's soaking yes! it. Already that would have gone very poorly. And there's a scene when they get to the, they get to the um, actual... Room. grave of the the night and they're getting the cover off of the, the the tomb and he's dropping little bits of burning cloth oh, onto the petroleum water no no that doesn't light it it has to be lit by a match <laughs> yeah, so it just doesn't make sense i'm gonna i'm gonna have to overlook it because everything else is done so right 
But that is my changed one thing. How I'm about a, you, Russ? I'm going to say uh, I would like to just wait a little bit longer for Walter Donovan to emerge as the bad guy. It's not a total shocker that he's the bad guy. I, I think there might have been a slightly more dramatic time to bring him in than they did. There's not a lot to complain about in this. Kelly, on a five-star rating scale, what would you give Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? I definitely would give it five stars. I really love this movie. It's one of my favorites. I think there's a chance that you could be uh, in good company. Mary's got a big smile on her face. What do you think? Definitely five stars for this movie. That's a five-star movie. Can I give it six or do I have to give it five? Yeah, I'd like to give it six. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Uh, Because the system only allows me to go up to five, I give this a five stars. But I really love this movie. It is in my top three action movies of all time it's just so good and um i really enjoyed watching it again every time i watch it i just you know the theme song runs in my head for a week like mary said and i don't know it's not even nostalgia it's just that good of a movie it's aged very well let's select the movie for next time mary are you up to helping me out for this one sure i'd be happy to help we've got three movies here we're gonna do a drama next time So we've got option one from 1999, American Beauty. A sexually frustrated suburban father has a midlife crisis after becoming infatuated with his daughter's best friend. Option two, The Graduate. A disillusioned college graduate finds himself torn between an older lover and her daughter. Option three, Munich from 2005, another Spielberg movie. Based on a true story, The Black September Aftermath, about five men chosen to eliminate one of the responsible for the fateful day. Hmm, this is going to be a tough pick, but I did just see a Saturday Night Live when we had Paul Simon uh, come on to do music. So I think that uh, having just seen Paul Simon perform, I think that let's go with The Graduate because the this Paul Simon's music in that is just iconic. Deet. all right we'll do the graduate sounds great kelly thank you so much for joining us today i really appreciate you coming out she's under the weather and she still performed great i mean uh, thank you (laughs) uh, we, we had a great time uh breaking this movie down with you it's uh it's a great movie thank you so much and mary thank you for stepping in for john and pinch hitting and doing a great job of finding a lot of fun and facts and stuff like that so we always enjoy having you on the show you'll be you'll both be back someday in the future i hope so yeah thank yes, you thank you great to be here today it's a fun little andy holt uh reunion from university of tennessee then so definitely as always please reach out to us subscribe to us on itunes that helps grow the show please give us a rating and review it takes very little time that really helps us out getting uh other people to find the show uh you can download us on itunes spotify stitcher uh, google play wherever you get your podcast email us at retro movie roundtable if you would like and give us a like on facebook as always thank you for listening and be good to each other and watch more movies kelly get off my plane